And now for something completely different. Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money. Markets. Life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And welcome to the show today. Of course, it's the second best day of the week as we get into the Thursday edition here of the show as we uh, move further into the month of June. Summer now officially underway as uh, we get into the summer doldrum months, right? June, July, August. uh, Mosquitoes are back in Texas. (laughs) The heat's coming. So, but good news. Um, There was a recent poll out today, actually out in the, the, I think it was in the journal, uh, if I'm not mistaken. They took a poll and they asked people to choose between two states. They said, choose any two states and do you would would prefer to live in? So you can choose either a state or Washington, D.C. So where would you rather, where would you rather be? Right. So Texas, top 10. Of course. Top 10 for Texas. Yes. California was like number 12. It's been kind of shifting down the list. Washington, D.C., dead last. Nobody wants to live in Washington, D.C. So, and, and how does that uh, pertain to its bid to be a state? Well, I'm, I'm, that's a totally different issue. So yeah. that's, that has nothing to do with people actually want to live there. That's a power grab. So that's, that's a completely side. Now, if they, if they rank it by which states want to have the most power, uh, Washington, D.C. ranks yeah. number one, yeah. right? So it's sure. just, there you go. Um, but anyway, so the good news for Texas. We, you know, Texas always ranks in the top ten, by the way. You know, best-looking women, top ten. Sure. Always, right? So, you know, everything bigger, Texas. Uh, that's always number one. So, <laughs> so, but yeah, it's very interesting. People actually rather live in Alaska than Washington, D.C. <laughs> just saying. <laughs> Negative 40 degrees, no problem. Six months of dark, no problem. Better there than Washington, D.C. That's all I'm saying. Uh, anyway, let's get to work today. Lots of stuff to get into as, as we kind of get ready to wrap up this week. The uh, inflation print is out this morning. That is the big concern here, right? Uh, how big is that inflation number going to be? And is it transient or not? That is the question, right? Um, you know, this, the, you know, right now the Fed continues to kind of sit on the sidelines saying, hey, this is transient inflation. We're not going to do anything with our, you know, tightening monetary policy at this point because we don't think this inflation is permanent. We think it's transient. Uh, these things are all going to reverse in short order. However, there is a camp that is also saying, no, this is permanent. We are back into 1974 type inflation. Now, it really depends on where you want to pick your poison in terms of how you want to allocate relative to inflation. But inflation has a couple of problems here uh, for the financial markets in particular. There is a historical correlation between inflation and valuations. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment, right? There's a historical correlation between higher rates of inflation and lower valuations. Now, how do I get valuations lower? I have two choices. Either I can increase the price or I can, oh, sorry, I can either reduce the price, right? Sorry, I'll get this spit out. I can either reduce the price or I can increase the earnings multiple. Since earnings are impacted by inflation, in other words, if inflation goes up, my margins decrease because I can't, in a lot of cases, can't pass that on to my consumer base in terms of higher prices, at least not all of it. Higher rates of inflation, especially sharply rising rates of inflation, tend to impact earnings. So 
historically, there's a very long correlation going back to the 1800s between inflation, rising, and lower valuations, which suggests that um, markets may be in a little bit of trouble here considering that we have the second highest level of valuations on record. So if we get a contraction in multiples, contraction in multiples generally align with lower market prices at some point. Now, it doesn't mean tomorrow, doesn't mean the next day, but this is the thing to be thinking about, particularly as we move ahead. Oil prices back up, really kind of hitting $70 a barrel on West Texas Intermediate Crude. Okay, that's the highest level that we've seen in a couple of years. That also is a cost to consumers. As oil prices go up, the cost of everything related to energy also rises in price, right? So that goes right down into the pocketbook of consumers. And here over the next three months, June, July, August, uh, and September, all of those unemployment benefits, those extended unemployment benefits, you know, those extra $600 week checks, $300 week checks, all those extra unemployment benefits that have been kind of being pushed through to the economy are going to be evaporated. This is really kind of the last of the stimulus that's sitting out there that's been helping support consumption at this point those are starting to come to an end. So as we get closer to the end of summer, there's gonna be more and more pressure on this income cliff coming back on the economy at a time where you have higher prices. Now, this is the important part to understand about this. When we start talking about inflation, part of this is, yes, those disrupted supply chains, which are causing a inability to deliver supply relative to, this is the important point of this, relative to the demand of consumers, right? So <clears throat> when we did all of these additional stimulus checks, the $1,400 checks, the $900 checks, and other $1,400 checks, these, uh, all these extended unemployment benefits, what we've been doing is pulling forward command, uh, demand for retail sales, right? We've pulled forward about five years worth of retail sales at this point. Now, that ability to consume at that same level is going to start to drop off at a time where businesses are trying to ramp up supply. So now as demand begins to decrease and supply is increasing marginally at this point, you're gonna to start to see a realignment of that supply demand curve. And a lot of this pressure on supply chains are gonna evaporate. The lack of demand will start to reduce pressures. And this is why the Fed is saying that a lot of these cases that we're looking at in terms of inflation seem to be transient in nature because simply as we start to go further into this year, we're gonna to start to see a return to slower rates of economic growth, consumption growth, et cetera, as we get back to a normalcy. This recovery that we've had has been outside size because of five trillion dollars worth of stimulus now think about this right we have a uh, at the time we had a 19 trillion dollar economy 20 trillion depending on uh, what exact measure point in time you want to start to measure it but we basically dumped about you know five trillion dollars into a 20 trillion dollar economy right so 20 percent of the economy was dumped in in terms of liquidity directly to households over the course of just a, a course of 12 months. So of course you're gonna get this outsized recovery in the economy, but it's artificial. And once that stimulus begins to leave the markets and once that begins to evaporate, we're going to return back to a normal economic growth rate, a normal economic trend. And the question will be, since we pulled forward all this consumption, we won't return back just to the normal trend. We will actually go to a slower rate of growth until we absorb that consumption, that, that void of consumption that we've now put out into the future by pulling forward all those sales. So this is gonna be one of the, the bigger pressures on inflation here over the course of the next year. Now we're gonna get into a lot more of this conversation this morning. Michael Leibowitz is joining me because this has everything to do with the Fed 
and the Fed is going to start potentially talking about tapering and where are they going to start to taper? Mike thinks they're going to actually start to announce a taper as early as next week at their meeting. So again, we'll get that conversation this morning, but let's get an update on the markets because as we've been, you know, consistently every day now, it's getting a little bit boring. I, I agree. Uh, markets aren't doing a whole lot. Uh, the last four or five days, uh, this whole week, markets have really not gone anywhere. We actually finished a little bit negative yesterday after a positive open. We're going to open down a little bit this morning. The question is going to be whether or not we can maintain this level. We've just been kind of pinging these these old highs, unable to get above that. And importantly, though. If we finish this week about where we are now, we will have officially triggered that weekly sell signal that we've been watching very closely. Again, haven't done it yet. Uh, weekly sell signals don't matter until the end of the week. But if we finish out this week where we are now, we will have triggered that sell signal. So pay attention to the markets and your money. Of course, we'll be talking more about this in our weekend newsletter as well when we have the update of the actual final flow indicator. That'll be out this weekend. Realinvestmentadvice.com. If you want a copy, just go by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Click on the newsletter link. Put your email address in. I'll email it to you on Saturday morning with all the updates on portfolios, etc. Be right back. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. You could be one of the 7 in 10 people requiring long-term care in your lifetime. Are you prepared for nursing home care costs averaging more than $7,600 a month? Our next virtual lunch and learn will cover the management of long-term care expenses that could make or break your retirement. Join Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff for the basics of long-term care. Long-term care. Register at Real Invest investmentadvice.com for our virtual lunch and learn on long-term care june 24th at noon realinvestmentadvice.com the real investment show everybody get up and good morning and welcome back to so you know so in our studio Brent will have to show you um, on our live stream, but in our studio we have monitors up on our on our walls, so we can kind of monitor what's happening with headline news, you know, kind of around around the market. So we got we've got CNBC up, Fox News up, CNN up, so we can always kind of keep an update as to what's going on in the world. And his headline just flashed across. Um, Mike's going to love this. Michael Leibowitz joining me this morning. <laughs> so during the pandemic, we had to bail out the airlines because they didn't have enough money to stay in business with the drop-off in traffic because they had been spending years spending all their money on share buybacks. And Lance, can I give you a quick warning? <laughs> well, go ahead. If, if you're going to tell me they're buying back shares, I'm leaving the show right now. Well, no, no, they are buying back shares, but even better, they're starting a venture capital fund called... <laughs> United Ventures. And so they're going to start using some of their money that they have now from all the bailouts to do venture capital work. So, you know, this just goes to show you that it's not a bad idea, right? Until you get into trouble again. And then you need, well, we can't liquidate our ventures. So we need another bailout from the government. So now taxpayers, well, tax, yeah, taxpayers are now on the hook for, you know, making sure they have profitable venture investments, right? <laughs> Aren't they learning from the best? Well, Yesterday, no. Yesterday, it was not disclosed. I guess we knew it. Someone had figured out that the Fed bought indirectly, but because they were buying junk bond ETFs, they actually own a piece of MicroStrategy, who's basically, <laughs> it seems like their whole business scheme is Bitcoin. Right. 
So the Fed owns Bitcoin. Is that any different? <laughs> no, <laughs> but but it is going to be interesting when it does come down. You know, but it, there, there's also another sideline of this is that, you know, this is another sign that, you know, here we are really at a very late stage of kind of this peak market mania when airline companies start getting into venture capital that tells you that exude you know it's like oh my gosh we can't miss out on this you know this market's just going to go up forever we got to get into it now and there's all this money to be made over here on venture we can't make money doing airline work so let's go be a venture capitalist now right um just kind of also kind of feeds into that whole you know kind of fact that we're very kind of late stage in this market mania where you've got retail investors chasing um you know you know virtually bankrupt companies um you know just over the last you know 18 months the companies with the absolutely worst balance sheets have have outperformed good quality balance sheet companies and not by a little bit by massive degrees of deviation so it just kind of again this this whole kind of gambling mentality that we brought to the market and this kind of insanity of of what we're watching kind of happen on surface very reminiscent of what we saw in 1999 very reminiscent of what we saw in 2007-2008 it's not different this time it's just a different playing field of the same mentalities that we've seen previously right right you know it's about liquidity so that's what's keeping markets where they are that's what's keeping valuations where they are and all roads again i mean i hate to say it lead to the fed right Mm -hmm. i mean the fed is directly indirectly everyone has their own opinion we believe it's both (laughs) uh both directly and indirectly pumping the markets up and the effect is that not only do you get valuations that are sky high, but you get companies that are emboldened and now are doing stupid things. Mm-hmm. Not not stupid necessarily, but out of their wheelhouse. Right. Right. Like like what you talked about with the airlines, what MicroStrategy is doing. MicroStrategy is not a Bitcoin holding company. That's not why investors <laughs> own them. They there's some I don't know they're what they do, but they're a, tech they're, company, they're a software, software company. company. Yeah. Who has had zero revenue growth for like the last ten years? <laughs> so, they, know, but they did figure out a way to create a stock price that went up to the moon. So, you know, right. And now it's coming back to Earth pretty <laughs> exactly. quickly. Uh, and they're issuing now. Now the latest with MicroStrategy is they're issuing debt so that they can buy more Bitcoin. And the, the question I have now that is, wait, wait wait real quick though before you jump on that because it is a very interesting offering. If you looked at the offer, what they're doing is, is they're saying, we're going to offer $400 million out in senior secured debt. Now, most senior, most corporate bonds that you buy are non-secured, right? They're just basically, you know, you hope the company will be able to pay you back at some point down the road. But a secured debt is something that is secured by an underlying asset. So, you know, let's say Mike and I have a company that, you know, has a bunch of real estate um, as part of our company. So we issue out some debt and we say, okay, you know what? Uh, we're going to guarantee the, the bondholders that their debt is secured by all the real estate that we own. So in the event of trouble, we liquid the, we have to liquidate our real estate. They get paid first, right? So they have a lien on that collateral. This was interesting about MicroStrategy. They said, hey, we're going to raise this $400 million, but it's going to be secured by the new Bitcoin that we buy. All the other Bitcoin that we've bought, that is off into a separate entity now that um, creditors don't have access to. So, you know, the, the, you are secured. They are issuing the $400 million, So when they buy $400 million worth of Bitcoin, um, you will get that security, but you don't have access to any of the other security they have in their company. 
Here's what I can't get my head around. Who buys the debt? Who bar- who lends the money to MicroStrategy? Right? It, I think it pays 6%. Um, so you, can you can we talk about triple C rated junk right now at the lowest yields on record and no, ask who's actually buying the debt? I, I get it, but <laughs> but this is a company whose stock price is predicated on the price of Bitcoin. Right. But so it, you're really it, making a bet on Bitcoin. If you want to make a bet on Bitcoin, just buy Bitcoin where your upside could be 400 percent. Because because, again, let's go back to triple C ready credit credit triple C rated credit which is one notch above being in default. I mean, triple C is in a double C, you're in default, right? You've missed payments. So triple C's right. right there. It's got the lowest yield on record. This is this is also, let's go back. This is also a function of the Fed. By keeping rates at zero, suppressing rates, flooding the markets with liquidity, you've given savers no choice but to go buy yield somewhere. And, and they've created now this yield chase to where, and unfortunately this is, retirees and boomers and and people really with no experience in the markets they're going out and buying a lot of these companies like oh that bond's got a five percent yield on it i'm going to buy it because it's got five percent they have no idea what risk they're taking they're just buying the yield and this same thing that's going to be and, and yeah you know microstrategy is going to be able to sell this this yielding the six percent yielding bond in a minute i mean it's going to hit the markets and go away because it's six percent and it's secured people are going to buy it left and right and it's even worse because of ETFs. Most people don't even know they own it. Correct. Right. Right. It's in JNK. It's in HYG. I mean, they, they don't even know that they're buying this stuff. They're just buying junk. <laughs> they think it's probably some double well, because, B stuff because like it's Ford. Not, because it's not called junk, Mike. We have to use the proper marketing term. It's high yield. Right. Thank it's you, High Michael yielding Milliken. bonds. That's a good thing. Milliken. Right. Right. <laughs> that was his genius. Exactly. He relabeled, Mike Milliken relabeled it. From junk to high yield, and he sold a lot of it until until it, it blew until up. We went to jail, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, but yeah, but look, you know, this all comes back ultimately. You know, this whole moral hazard um, that we've created in the markets has, has really come from the Fed, and it's and it's interesting that the Fed does not acknowledge. Uh, you know, Neil Kashkari and other Fed members. They do everything they can to sit there and say, oh, we didn't cause this run up in prices. We had nothing to do with that. Yes, you did. You either directly liquefied markets by buying things or you created a psychology of moral hazard. And the definition of moral hazard is simply saying that there's an insurance against risk. And when you do stuff like start buying junk bonds to bail out credit markets, which ultimately you're bailing out investors, you create this idea that there is a you know, an insurance against risk. So why not buy the most risky of of stocks or bonds because there is no downside? Right. That's right. And remember, look, I know there's some skeptics. The Fed owns seven trillion, almost eight trillion worth of debt. That's eight trillion worth of assets or securities that no one else can buy, meaning that that seven, eight trillion dollars has to go buy something else. Right. Right. They, they have they have altered significantly the supply demand of every asset market you know in the world not just not just US treasury bonds or notes but every asset market because most asset most investors are fluid they can buy bonds they can buy stocks they can buy foreign stocks they can buy commodities they can buy all kinds of things so they've permanently altered it they've they've lowered rates to zero so that a lot of junk debt trades at you know 1 1 and a half 2 and a half percent 
right? So these companies can say, okay, you know what, two and a half percent, we'll borrow some money, we'll do something stupid with it, maybe it'll pay off. <laughs> we'll buy a we'll buy a handful of lottery tickets because the the cost of debt is so low. It's also encouraging margin or leverage. It's mm -hmm. a, an incredible amount of leverage is going on in these markets. So you, you end up with these prices that are so distorted from reality, just like we see in the economy. Take a look at retail sales. It's 15% above its last five-year trend. Take a look at unemployment. It's 10 million jobs short mm -hmm. of where it should be. That, 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 that gap, that divergence is is due to fiscal policy, but that's exactly what's going on in the stock market. Right. A divergence between between the price or the valuation and the reality and what those cash flows from those underlying companies can support. Well, and again, there's, you know, that's all, this all works until eventually, you know, you have to start reversing some of this liquidity, right? And this is something we'll talk about, you know, after the break, because we've got Jackson Hole coming up here in September. Um, we're going to get an inflation printout today, which is expected to be huge because of simply the year-over-year -year base effects. And we'll come back after the break, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. But, you know, this is going to be a challenge, you know, for the Fed, is how do you start this process of removing accommodation or can you ever at this point? I mean, have you gotten so far down that rabbit hole that simply you can no longer reverse monetary accommodation because of the impact to the markets? I mean, that's the question that, that I think everybody's going to have to try to figure out, right? So when we come back, we'll pick up with Mike and we'll get into that story specifically because Mike actually thinks we may actually hear the beginning of the word taper as early as next week. So don't go uh -oh, away. Oh, the T word. The T word which leads to the F-bomb for investors. <laughs> Be right back after the break. I'm Real Science Roberts. Don't go away. Seasons don't bear the reaper. No to the wind, the sun of the rain. It be like they are. Come on, baby. Bear the reaper. Take my Investment show. You could be one of the seven in ten people requiring long-term care in your lifetime. Are you prepared for nursing home care costs averaging more than $7,600 a month? Our next virtual lunch and learn will cover the management of long-term care expenses that could make or break your retirement. Join Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff for the basics of long-term care. Long-term care. Register at realinvestmentadvice.com for our virtual lunch and learn on long-term care. June 24th at noon. Real investmentadvice.com. You're listening to The Real Investment Show. Carry on my wayward son. There'll be peace when you are done. Lay your weary head to rest. Don't you cry no more. Yeah. And welcome back to the morning. It's uh, 6.33 as we get this uh, morning edition of The Real Investment Show underway. Um, Sun's, you know, coming up. People are driving back to work. World's getting back to normal, and uh, that means that you know we may have to actually start seeing a bit of change to 
you know, monetary policy potentially as things start to return to a bit of normalcy in, in the world. And and this is something we're talking about with Michael Leibowitz this morning. This morning, um, we're going to get the latest inflationary print. Now, this number is going to be huge. Um, and the reason is, is because this time last year, we had a lot of deflationary pressures in the economy because of the economic shutdown. So we're going to see a very, very sharp increase in CPI. So you're going to hear a lot. You're going to see lots of articles out today. You're going to hear lots of headlines, people fretting over the 1970 inflation is back and you know, the world's about to end. Just be careful with that because there's a lot of things that suggest that this will likely be the peak of the inflationary numbers as we start getting into stronger inflationary numbers as the economy and the world started recovering in the third quarter of last year. So we're going to start to see some of this. But this is uh, but Michael Leibowitz is joining me this morning to talk a little bit about the Fed, because, look, the, the Fed has a, a very delicate tightrope that they walk here with zero interest rates. They can't lower interest rates any further. And they've been doing one hundred and twenty billion dollars a month in this quantitative easing support for markets. And, you know, there there is a point to where you've got to start potentially reducing that support otherwise you're going to start impacting you know financial markets and the credit markets etc there's you know so so they do have some limitations as to how much qe they can do and it's also a function of how much treasury debt's being issued and that's becoming a bit more challenging here as the amount of debt being issued by the treasury has been slowing down here as we've gotten past all of these massive stimulus bills so you know, do you, and then of course we also look at the housing market, which has you know surged to an all-time you know price record here on housing prices around the country. And so, is the Fed potentially in a position where they're going to have to almost kind of get forced into potentially tapering some of their debt purchases? Yeah. So I think it's becoming obvious that they have distorted certain markets. Uh, they've distorted the inflation implied inflation markets via the purchasing of tips. They have them and the Treasury have distorted the short end, like Treasury bills, the overnight borrowing rates. We see that where every day there's half a trillion money being lent to the Fed because they need collateral. There's just not enough anymore. So there's all kinds of distortions that are going on. Uh, mortgages is another great one, right? The mortgage rates were low to begin with, but the Fed is buying 40 billion worth of mortgages a month. So they're only making it lower. Mm-hmm. Right. They're 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 encouraging people. They're making it easier for people to buy houses, driving up home prices. And a lot of that, you know, I mean, it, it's kind of crazy. But a lot of what we're hearing is that companies are buying whole whole tracks of housing. Right. That, you know, a company will buy will build 100 houses and a, another company will come in and buy them right. to rent them and ultimately sell them. So so that's driving up prices because those companies can borrow money dirt cheap, cheaper than citizens can borrow money so they've all kinds of distortions and we talked about that earlier too right so the fed has to back out of what they're doing and And we we saw saw the beginnings of it right and by the way just just for context we saw the exact same thing happening in 2007 and early 2008 blackrock was buying all kinds of houses to turn them into rentals because of what was going on with uh, you know uh, with the housing market um, and even through the, the financial crisis itself. But, you know, this isn't the first time that we've seen, you know, institutions getting involved in buying, you know, real estate assets for, you know, 
turning them into rentals or for price appreciation, et cetera. So this is not new. It's just a, the kind of a phase of the late stage cycle. Right, right, exactly. So, so the Fed has to, right, the Fed is still, they're putting out a fire with all these fire hoses all over the place and the fire's, you know, it's just smoldering now. Mm-hmm. We don't need to throw all this water on the fire. So about a week or two ago, the Fed said that they were going to wind down their corporate bond uh, purchases. They only bought, what, 12, 13 billion or something like that. Mm-hmm. But they started selling those last week and they're going to wind that down. And, and look, it, it's not a lot. It was more the threat of buying <laughs> than the actual purchases. Right. But that that's being wound down as we speak. So that's kind of the first step that they took. Right. They also actually wound down some programs where they were lending money to various entities that that's coming to an end. Right. So the next big the big thing for the markets is when are they going to end QE? When are they going to raise rates? And they'll probably end QE before they start raising rates. And they don't just end QE. They're not going to say next month, we're just not going to do anything. We're going to sit on our hands. They're going to say we're going to, instead of buying $120 billion a month, we're going to buy $110 billion, $105 billion, $100. month after that, we'll buy 90 And by the end of the year, we'll get down to 50 so, mm-hmm. You know, something like that. But I think I've come to this conclusion over the last couple of weeks that they're actually going to start the process next Wednesday. Next Tuesday, Wednesday is when the Fed meets and they'll come out with their new monetary policy statement. It'll look pretty similar, but they've been coming under increasing pressure about about the housing market. The housing market's on fire and they are to blame for it directly. (laughs) They are buying mortgages. They are lowering mortgage rates. Right. Right. You know, their effect on stocks, we can debate about all day. We can have that conversation. There's no debate about what they're doing to the mortgage market. So I think what's going to happen next Wednesday, and if it doesn't happen next Wednesday, it's certainly six weeks after that at the next meeting or at Jackson Hole. What's going to happen, I think, is that they're going to say, so right now they're buying 80 billion of uh, U.S. Treasuries and 40 billion mortgages. I think they're going to say we're going to reduce our mortgages to 30 billion, 25 billion Mm. a month. And the question becomes, if they reduce that, they're reducing QE, they're tapering QE. That's a big deal because every time Powell's been asked, he answers the same way. We're not even thinking about thinking about tapering. For him to taper would be a huge confidence issue for the Fed. It basically says we lie through our teeth, don't trust us. <laughs> and, and right, the markets are based, are built, these valuations are built on trust and confidence in the Fed. So they're not going to do that. They're not going to say we're reducing our mortgages and we're only going to do $110 billion a month. Mm-hmm they'll likely add it to treasuries, right? So they'll say, we're gonna reduce mortgages by 10 and we're gonna buy 10 more treasuries. Well, now you got another problem. There's a a shortage of treasury securities, especially in the very front end, because of what we've talked about in the past with the treasury. Mm -hmm. The treasury is not issuing nearly enough short-term bills. There's a ton of savings accounts, corporates, corporations, and, and just citizens that are sitting in money markets. So these banks don't want any more cash. Mm. Um, so they don't want the Fed to take away any more securities out of the front end. So that means the Fed would have to take that 10, additional 10 billion in this case and buy five year, seven year, 10 year debt. Right. And look, and, that, and that's, and that's you, you hit on a point here that a lot of people understand is that if I've got cash sitting in my bank account, so you know we, we have banks that run on fractional reserve banking, right? 
And what that means is, is that I only have to have a fraction of whatever I'm loaning out actually in the bank. So if you have a million dollars of cash sitting in your bank account, you don't have a million dollars. You can't, if you walk down to the bank, say, hey, give me a million dollars. They don't have a million dollars, just, you know, your particular million dollars sitting in a vault somewhere they're going to give you. They've got to have access. They, they've loaned that money out. That money's gone. It's it's being used for other stuff. There's a fraction of that money, you know, in the bank on their balance sheet. But a large chunk of it has been loaned out and it's backed by treasury security. So they're buying short-term bills, they're buying 10-year treasuries, and they can't sell those off to the Fed unless they want to increase their reserve balances, right? And which isn't right. necessarily beneficial for them. So there, this this issue of this supply and demand imbalance between what the Fed is buying and what the treasury is issuing becomes problematic if, if the Federal Reserve can't get to the amount of treasuries they need to buy. And this is one of the risks that they're potentially running down the road is just a lack of supply of treasuries for them to get a hold of. Right. And it sounds crazy, right? There's not enough treasury bonds to go around. They just issued five, five trillion in the last like uh, 16, 15 months. Right. And treasury but bonds. The Fed has won <laughs> almost all, all of that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and there's just natural buyers of it too. Right. Right. So the, the, these are the distortions. The Fed has warped these markets so much that the Fed now can't even go in and operate the way they're used to operating. And they're going to force these distortions are forcing the Fed to do some things that they may not want to do, mm -hmm. but they have to do. And they may not be what's best for policy, in their opinions. But they're going to have to do it. Right. Well, when we come back from the break here, too, you know, I want to flip this around just a little bit and talk about. You know, this, this, uh, you know, look, there's been plenty of trial balloons kind of floated across the markets over the last couple of weeks. We've heard quite a few Fed members, um, you know, talking about having the, the need to maybe have to start working on the balance sheet and tapering a little bit, um, slowing purchases. We've had a lot of Fed members come out and kind of start laying those trial balloons for the markets. And, you know, and, and this is one of the, the ways that the Fed works by forward communication. So, yes, the, Jerome Powell hasn't said anything, and he's the hammer. But there's been a lot of forward communication kind of coming out to the markets, kind of prepping the markets, to your point, about potentially tapering. So when we come back, we'll talk about the impact on the financial markets during periods where the Fed tapers. And we'll talk about what the risks to investors are as well. Don't go away. Come back right here on realinvestmentadvice.com. Get by our website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Latest articles are coming out, of course, on our website. Just click on the newsletter link if you want our newsletter. This weekend, we'll deliver it to you via email. Just click on the newsletter link. And of course, you can watch all of our shows, videos, three minutes of markets, money, etc. simply by clicking our YouTube link. Subscribe there as well. We're going to get you all connected. Realinvestmentadvice.com. Be right back. listening to The Real Investment Show. You could be one of the 7 in 10 people requiring long-term care in your lifetime. Are you prepared for nursing home care costs averaging more than $7,600 a month? Our next virtual lunch and learn will cover the management of long-term care expenses that could make or break your retirement. Join Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff for the basics of long-term care. Long-term care. Register at realinvestmentadvice.com for our virtual lunch and learn on long-term care. June 
June 24th at noon. Realinvestmentadvice.com. The Real Investment Show. this morning. So a couple of things here to talk about just as we kind of wrap up our conversation with Mike Leibowitz this morning. We had a question uh, from our listener in Germany today um, asking about reverse repo. And of course, uh, we touched on that a second ago um, in terms of just the the very sharp increase in repo operations that are going on right now This uh, with the Fed. And the last time we saw this type of activity was back in 2019. Um, and Mike and I in September had lots of conversations. We wrote articles about this at the time. And this was one of those kind of early kind of warning indicators. There was trouble for the markets coming um, when people were showing up at basically the Fed window and saying, hey, I've got this awesome collateral. And ba- other banks were going, yeah, we'll loan you money overnight at like 9 and 10%. So, <laughs> you know, there was something broken for sure um, in the markets at that point. And we're seeing a lot of that same thing today. Mike, uh, quick comments on that. Yeah, so it's a little different this time. Then people, then banks were wanting to borrow money, mm-hmm. and other and investors, hedge funds wanted to borrow money. Now they want to lend money. They're, they're basically the Fed. The way the Fed repo programs work, and repo can go both ways. Collateral can come into the Fed or go out of the Fed. Is that they're pinned at a zero rate, so that you cannot, the Fed cannot borrow money sub zero. So these money market funds that are flush with cash, like we discussed earlier, saying, you know what, zero is pretty good. I'm just going to lend it to the Fed because if I have to go into the market, I'm going to get below zero. So right now you have on a daily basis almost half a trillion of reverse repo going on every day. And again, it's a sign of a broken market. And it's a sign that there's not enough collateral to fill these derivative needs that are backed by collateral because they love using treasury bills. Mm -hmm. So again, broken markets. Yeah. Um, let's. Uh, so I, as I kind of finished up the last segment, I wanted to shift gears just slightly here and talk about this. You know, again, we've had a lot of forward guidance here from, you know, uh, Bullard and Meister and uh, Brainerd, et cetera, talking about the potential need here to start tapering rates or sorry, tapering QE here, uh, maybe sooner rather than later. The only kind of holdout at this point we haven't heard from who previously was not even thinking about thinking about tapering was Jerome Powell. And he's now maybe thinking about thinking about tapering and potentially, to your point, might start seeing some early action on that um, as soon as next week. But if we go back in history, and again, there's not a lot of history to this because we didn't start this kind of QE, you know, monetary balance infusion until after the financial crisis in 2008. This was uh, kind of an invention of Ben Bernanke at the time. We did QE1 in 2009, QE2 in 2010. And um, then we did uh, Operation Twist, that we did quantitative easing three and moving into 2013, 2014 on concerns about the fiscal cliff that we were going to have due to the debt ceiling default um, a balanced budget amendment that we tried to put into place. Um, and then, of course, QE4 here just recently. In those periods where we've seen these tapering events or, or commentary about slowing purchases or potentially even hiking rates uh, from the Fed, markets have not responded terrifically to that news. Didn't mean they crashed, but we've had plenty of 20% corrections. We've had markets just kind of go nowhere for a period of time. Um, a lot more volatility, a lot more action, um, you know, downside price action. Is that kind of what we would expect this time as well? 
You know what? We're 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 an airplane flying at sixty thousand feet, and the Fed's gonna the Fed if they remove QE wants to take some of the lift out of the environment, right? So you would suspect that a best case scenario is we fly at sixty thousand feet, we glide, but but the Fed is going to be removing liquidity, and that I think is why they're so hesitant to do anything. That's why they don't want to think about think about thinking about whatever they're thinking about, right? <laughs> they are they are hesitant to remove the liquidity from the markets because the Fed believes in the trickle down effect. Right. And the trickle down effect is if you get the prices of stocks to go up even though a small percentage of people own stocks, those people will take their profits, they'll spend money and it'll just trickle elegantly through the whole economy and we all win. Right. We're all winners. Right. It hasn't, it hasn't worked, but yeah, you know, Right, the rich right. have gotten exorbitantly rich. Those that own asset prices, uh, assets, but those that don't haven't so much. Right, right, right. And even you know, you'll say, well, a lot of people own them. Well, a lot of people own them, but it's in their four hundred one ks. So your four hundred one k may be doing better, but you can't touch it for twenty years. Right, and that's even a myth right. itself. I mean, if you actually take a look right. at who owns the stock market, just quick stats that's for true. everybody. You know, the top ten percent of income earners own almost ninety percent of the stock market. The bottom ninety percent own roughly 10% of the market. And there is this belief, Mike, that and we were having this conversation with uh, our, our re retirement plan 401k uh, guru here at RA Advisors on Monday, um, Tom Allen, talking about the fact that if you actually break down the number of 401k plans in the country, only 50% of companies own uh, offer 401k plans. And out of that 50%, only 25% of people actually contribute to it. So, I mean, it's really much more distorted than right. you know, people think because I mean everybody watches CNBC, so we just assume everybody's buying GameStop and AMC and Bitcoin, right? Um, but that's really not the case at all. No, no, that's right, that's right. Um, so, so you know, the Fed predicates everything on this trickle down that doesn't work. So the question is, well, how do they back out of this? And uh, you know, the problem they have is they weren't very flexible going into this. We're going to put our foot down on the gas pedal as hard as we can go, and we're never taking it off, right? Mm -hmm. And the mar one of the the Fed will be the first to tell you this. Forward guidance may be one of their best policy tools. Letting people, letting investors know in advance what they think they're going to do, well in advance, right? They like to tell you, okay, when we get up to mile marker four, we're going to slowly start taking a left turn, and we're going to start going down the next road. And they want to warn the market about what they're doing. Um, but the problem is it, it, the Fed can't back out now, right? They can't say, okay, we're going to taper. That would be a shock to the market, right? You could mm -hmm. easily see stocks drop 5% if they were to say, we're going to taper by 20 billion on Wednesday, next Wednesday, right? They can't do it right. because they backed themselves into a corner. Like as much as I'm not a fan of QE, if I were in charge of the Fed, I would have said, okay, we're going to start doing QE now. And it's going to be done on a on a month to month basis. We'll evaluate it. There are going to be months where we lower the amount. There are months where we do nothing. There may even be months where we buy some bonds back, where we uh, sell bonds back to the market. There are going to be other months where we do a whole lot of QE. But this is going to be dynamic. It's not going to be, you know, it's going to be based on economic conditions, based on meeting our goals on inflation and employment, and. That's the way it's going to be. But he's done the exact opposite. He's as rigid as you can be. Right. We're not doing anything to <laughs> to risk this recovery falling apart. Well, I think that's really it is that, you know, they and this was again, let's go back to Ben Bernanke in 2010 when, you know, this is, you know, after QE1. 
um, QE1 ended in April, May, June of 2010, and the market's promptly corrected by almost 20% in September. Um, at that juncture, Ben Bernanke came out and announced QE2, and he specifically stated, he said, this is very important, he says, because we're doing this to inflate asset prices because that boosts consumer confidence. Right. If we boost consumer confidence, that should create economic growth because people will feel more confident about spending money if the stock market's doing well. And this was that where, this was that moment where the Fed adopted this third mandate. You know, their, their primary mandate, their two primary mandates are full employment and price stability, i.e. control controlling inflation. They added that third component in 2010 of asset prices as a function of boosting consumer confidence. But it really hasn't worked in that manner because, again, uh, most people aren't invested, you know, in the markets. And so markets going up or down don't change their spending behaviors to any great degree. And like everything else, they mask it, right? They call it financial stability, not (laughs) rising stock prices for the rich. Right. Right. Financial stability sounds like something they should be doing, trying to keep the system stable, but they're actually doing the exact opposite. I know it feels great that our plane's flying at 60,000 feet, but that plane can drop right out of the air, right? right? It's not stable. You get financial stability when prices are at fair value, when they're fairly priced. Nothing is fairly priced, right? And it's not just stocks. It's, It's almost everything. Well, right? and you brought this up in your article yesterday, which is on the website now, uh, Michael's uh, part two of his article talking about the, the Fed and taper and, you know, this this whole idea that we're talking about this morning is on the uh, is on the website now at realinvestmentadvice.com. But he talked specifically in, in part two of this article about financial stability. And this is a key term because, you know, this is the paradox that the Fed you know, gets himself caught in is that financial stability, cre- trying to create financial stability ultimately leads to instability because at some point, regardless of your efforts, somebody pushes the big red button. And, and the whole point of financial stability is to try to keep people from making that decision. But something always happens that causes somebody to push that red button and everybody floods for the exit. <laughs> but, but let me take that a step further. Yeah. If everything is fairly valued and someone pushes the red button, a lot of people say, you know what, I'll buy from that guy because these are fair prices or even cheap prices. But when everyone knows that prices are expensive, I mean, anyone can even, you know, my wife who doesn't even know what the stock market is can tell you that stocks are expensive. Right. I hope she's not listening. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, it, everyone knows it, right? It's CNBC even talks about it. Right. That's the problem is that there's a huge air gap under this market until you get to fair value. Right. And that's where buyers, rational buyers, come in and buy. Uh, and, that's, so, and, and, that, and that's ultimately you know, the function of the market is that you know, that air gap is, is what you're talking about here is where buyers will step in. So when the selling starts... The reason that prices fall for every, and we talked about this before, for every buyer, there has to be a seller. The problem is, is when that market turns, there is a massive gap between where sellers are wanting to sell and where buyers are willing to buy. And that's how you have those March 2020 type events where the market corrects by 35% in the course of three weeks. Right. And that's that gap that shows up 
between where buyers really are. And and right now, they're a lot lower than where current prices currently are in the markets. Hey, Mike, thanks so much for joining us today. Get by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Part two of the article on financial stability is on the website now. You wrote that yesterday. It's uh, at the top of the list right there on the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. While you're there, click our newsletter link. Make sure you're subscribed to our newsletter. We'll have that out on Saturday for you. Uh, latest positioning update and an update on our weekly sell indicator because we're very close to triggering that. We'll know on Friday. And of course, uh, get our link to our YouTube con- podcast as well, as well as our subscriber service, riapro.net. It's all on the website. Can't miss it. Realinvestmentadvice.com. We'll see you tomorrow. It's a rich man's world.